I've always been worried myself. You know, I, 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 I fought in the most demanding of, of, the, of the Herrick tours. And I'm pretty sure that Telic 10, when we came out of Basra Palace, was right up there amongst the most demanding of the Iraq tours. Um, I've never considered myself a victim. You know, I, I saw some abhorrent things. I've got friends who have suffered life-changing injuries as a consequence, and I've got friends who didn't come back. But none of that makes me a victim. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. In this Conservative Party conference special, we sit down with Armed Forces Minister James Heapy MP. James is a veteran of Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghanistan. In this episode, he reflects on what it means to not only be a veteran in politics, but also a minister. He's refreshingly open, honest and human, something that our politics badly needs. Thanks to Joboppo and Company X Consulting for your support. It's time for you to meet our guest. It's absolutely brilliant to be joined today by James Heapy, the Minister for the Armed Forces, the MP for, for Wales since 2015, a former rifles officer with service in Northern Ireland, Iraq and Afghanistan, and joins us today from Conservative Party Conference. How is conference going for you so far, James? So far... Uh... So good, actually. I mean, I, it, the, the bizarre thing is, for all that's going on in the world right now, um, there isn't tons of defence and security discussion at conference, to be honest with you. Um, the foreign policy fringe such that it is, and, and inevitably at these sorts of events, actually, it's sort of domestic policy that is, that is of most interest to most of the delegates that are attending and most of the sort of lobbying that goes on here is around domestic policies so that that tends to dominate but even in the sort of foreign policy fringe that that there is it's mostly around sort of cop 26 and climate uh and so um so the sort of honest answer to your question is that uh hitherto there have been few opportunities to talk defense but there's an event coming up this afternoon where we will um consider the future in afghanistan and um and obviously uh, the, the defence ministerial team are giving our sort of um, address to conference this afternoon. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's not been as busy as previous conferences, but um, but everybody seems in high spirits. I suspect mostly because everybody's just really pleased to all be in one place for the first time in in a really long time, and sort of feels quite strange to be in a packed bar, but at the same time quite nice because all your friends are there, and it's great to catch up with people. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the defence team there, which is well represented by the veterans community with Secretary of State being a veteran and yourself being a veteran as well. And and what in terms of going back to your army and your political career, do you have any recollections or reflections about the, 
the individuals or how you made those decisions to go into the military and politics and how you reflect on that now and would you perhaps do anything different as in the benefit of hindsight going into your military career or your political career yeah well i mean i should mention um leo doherty as well of course there are three of us who are veterans on the on the defense team um which i think by the way is a blessing and a curse uh a blessing in so much as um, the mod and the armed forces love an acronym and you already kind of half speak the lingo uh, as you arrive and also because you um you are uh, enamored is the wrong word you're, you're not overawed by by the uniform and i think there can be a thing when you arrive in the mod where you must sort of assume that anything that is said to you by anybody in a uniform must be exactly right because they're in a uniform and i think if you've served your 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 more comfortable challenging military opinion um, on the other hand, it's a curse. I expect if you spoke to um, CDS, particularly once he can go weapons three in a few weeks' time and sort of, um, you know, and offer his true reflections on what it's been like to work with with politicians, he would probably reflect that those of us who have served are um, are, are slightly more tempted to go. No, no, no CDS, take a knee. Uh, the answer here is to go right flanking, uh, and then you have to sort of watch them sort of sort of bite their lip whilst politely explaining that, you know, we do the policy, but they'll work out how to execute it thereafter. Um, but um, but look, what would I have done differently? I, I just, uh, there was no grand design in this for me. I didn't, I didn't enter, I went into military service because I wanted to be a soldier. Uh, I had done PO visits with the Navy beforehand and decided that that wasn't for me, but that the army was. Uh, and I spent the first nine years of my military career, which has ended up being the entirety of my commissioned career year at Sandhurst beforehand, thrusting to make general. You know, there was that was the that was the plan. Um, and you know, I wanted to command a rifle company, command my battalion, command a brigade, and away we go. Um, and it was only when I was posted to MOD main building um, after finishing as adjutant to rifles that I was exposed to the sort of wonderful, chaotic, but exhilarating world of, of policymaking. And I thought that there might be a sort of role in that for me. Um, I thought initially that maybe that would be as a policy advisor or in a think tank or maybe as a journalist. Um, I didn't think at all that it would be uh, as a frontline politician, but um, but Liam Fox, who was my constituency MP from uh, where I grew up, gave me a job uh, when I first left the army, and actually it didn't take me long um, after working for Liam to realise that I would I'd quite like to give it a go myself. And um, you know, I'd always been interested in politics, but um, but as I say, it was, it was sort of it was sort of an incremental journey rather than all done with some sort of great design that I was going to going to sort of do X number of years as a warrior and then become a politician and be PM by the time I was 45. That's, um, <laughs> that, was, that was never quite the case. Well, you spoke there about some of the preparation that's happened organically through your, your military career and through those various um, postings as well, and some fortune as well. And politics, let's face it, needs some fortune. Um, but when you go into a military career, you also mentioned some of the preparation you do, those visits, the fact-finding. What, if any, preparation is there available for you when you're transitioning out of the military 
and going forward and doing a successful election campaign and you know what what kind of preparation did you do outside of those things that you've already just mentioned now well i mean the answer is that in my day there was none and actually i still think there's not very much um and it can be quite it can be quite disconcerting because you know those of us every salary i've ever earned is published on a website uh, and you don't get rich as a captain or as a major in the British Army. Um, and although no, you're, not, you're not badly off, but you're not, you don't, you don't, you're not earning enough to be saving thousands upon thousands of pounds every month. And so just financially going into politics was a massive leap into the unknown. Um, I had to, uh, you know, I had to fight a seat that I needed to win from the other side. There was no guarantee that I'd be successful in doing that. Um, and I knew that I was going to need to campaign pretty much full time to, to win the seat. And so, you know, when you go from an environment where you're in a very safe, clearly not when you're being shot at in Sangin, but, but, but you know, career-wise, in terms of you know, accommodation, pay, career progression, the military is quite a safe environment in that sense. Um, to being an environment where I had no income, any income I sought to generate for myself would be at the expense of my time to campaign. And the goal was to get elected to parliament. Um, and so, you know, I racked up 30,000 pounds worth of debt uh, over two years of campaigning pretty much full time. Uh, thank heavens I won. If I'd lost, um, I would have had the debt and a completely empty diary and have had to have been paying it all off. And so, you know, going into politics is is not without risk, and I think that can be quite intimidating for um, for people as they leave the army because you, know, you, you you might quite naturally draw the conclusion, well, how on earth do you go into politics, particularly if you're going to fight a marginal seat without lots of money behind you? Pl- plenty of people do it, but it just requires lots of sacrifice. And I think for those of us who are used to uh, the very sort of stable terms and conditions that come with military service, it can be particularly off-putting. Um, now, look, lots of people make the transition because there are lots of veterans in the House of Commons, three of them within the five-person defence ministerial team. Um, but um, but I would love us to find a sort of pathway for making um, for making the the, the 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 transition easier. Because I think I think you know. Um, I can only speak for the Conservative Party, but I'm, I think that our members are very proud of being represented by ex-military personnel where that's the case. Um, I got a thunderous round of applause very early in my final selection meeting when somebody, I think they thought they were asking me unhelpful, an unhelpful question, and they sort of stood up and said, you know, Mr. Heapy, you've got no campaign experience. And I said, well, I've done all my campaigning in Iraq and Afghanistan. <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Boom. Uh, so, um, but you know, and that that is that is a disadvantage, you know, because I think if you go into politics, you know, there are some councillors who have joined us today, and there's a sort of grind to being in politics. There's sort of knocking the doors, delivering the leaflets, attending the parish council meetings, and there is a sort of sense that you have to kind of serve your time going through that process in order to sort of get a shot at, at running for parliament. And veterans, you know, you, we can't do that. I mean, you, we could spend time doing it as veterans, 
But if you seek to transition directly from a regular military career into politics, you you can't have done all of that because Queen's Regs doesn't allow you to sort of actively participate in party politics whilst in um, whilst in military service. So, um, but I, I, my sense is that plenty of associations are willing to uh, to give you that credit, you know. But financially, it's still an enormous risk, and you learn by doing. I mean, I went from being an adjutant in a battalion where you um literally i think i mean the qm probably had a few kind of stressful decisions about how to make everything work but but by and large you were sort of within a chain of command your job was to 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 interpret orders and then deliver on them um and, and all of a sudden i was you know, having to raise money for myself we, we raised um, over a quarter of a million pounds over the course of the 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 the, the, the two and a half years that i was campaigning um, I employed staff. I had to rent premises for my campaign HQ. I had to. Uh, I was responsible for the sort of recruitment of volunteers. Um, you know, all these things were completely new skills. Um, the military skill set gives you lots of transferable stuff in which you know you can make a pretty good fist of it. But it was you know it was pretty exciting to say the least. And you um you learn by doing. So I think you're probably the first guest on the show that's gone into that that honesty around how much this costs both the human cost of course comes with it and family but also the financial cost and in fact in terms of that transition about being able to learn campaigning while still serving and the restrictions of queen's regs james sunderland and dan jarvis are probably two exceptions who directly transferred out of the military straight into politics and james goes into some detail around that on the podcast with us in a previous season but it's a really difficult situation to be able to go from military service, all those restrictions around campaigning to then leap into a campaign and raise money to pay for it. Um, so I'm really grateful for you to share that story with us because it's not something we've really discussed. And the other element as well that you've alluded to there is basically you're running a little small business as well when you've got a team and staff and an office to fund once you're an MP. Um, so I guess that brought its own challenges as well, right? It did. It did. And look, I mean, I don't, I don't um, in any way diminish the achievement of James Sunderland, Dan John, but there is, um, you know, people like Johnny and I who had to win the side, and therefore you've got to put it in the draft to win the seat in the first place. Um, that's a whole other challenge. You know, if you if you've been selected to contest a relatively safe seat. You've got a campaign, you've got to work hard, but it's over a much shorter period of time and with a higher degree of certainty um, or, a, or a higher probability of success. Um, and um, yeah, it was it was it was a big leap into the unknown. And um, I, I, I like I said, I mean, I shudder to think what would have happened if the, if the election had gone the other way, because I would have had all the debt. I had got a at the time of the. 2015 general election when I was elected I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old child um, had a mortgage um, and um, and I would have rolled the dice and piled in spectacularly uh, and um, and I you know and I, I suspect I'd have been still paying for it now um, but there you go you know you've got to sort of it's not meant to be easy I think sort of to, to, to get to parliament should be hard um, it's it's the most extraordinary honour to be a parliamentarian. And if it were easy, um, you'd probably get the wrong type of people doing it. 
100%. And I certainly think the right type of people are the veterans community, which is why I evangelize over this, which is why I'm trying to create those pathways from the military into service. And it's why I position myself as cross-party, politically agnostic. Um, and, but with that, working really closely with the Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces, we're starting to yeah. offer that bespoke pathway into the Conservative Party as well. And long may that work continue. Um, but you, know, you are there now. You are a Member of Parliament and you're a minister. What's it like yeah. being a minister? Are there any sort of misconceptions people might have about ministerial life or about you and your role in it? What's it like? No. I mean, honestly, there are there are so many occasions where you are sat there and you realise that what you have just said or what you have just heard is almost exactly the script from Thick of It or Yes, Minister. Um, and um, and you sort of have to pinch yourself at your sort of shuddering luck, lack of originality that you're sort of playing up to the caricature, even if desperately trying not to. I won't ask you who's um, Malcolm Tucker in that uh, scenario. I'll, I'll be... Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, I just, it, it's, uh, it, it's amazing. I mean, I, I sort of, there are people who revel in opposition. There are people who, um, who, who sort of find being part of the team that is government um, too constraining. And they want to sort of, they feel like they can do more by being their own voice, running their own, um, running their own show. And good luck to them. You know, I, I sort of, I, I don't begrudge that. There are plenty of people for whom that is most definitely the case. Um, but I just, politics is about power. It's about the power to affect change, the power to deliver on your agenda, the power to do something good. And I don't know why, if you had the opportunity to serve in Her Majesty's government, you wouldn't, because that's, you know, there is no better opportunity than to deliver your 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 agenda, deliver deliver you know change for the people than the, than the causes you care about. Um, and you know, yes, you know, you have to sort of bring in the ego a little bit and accept that you're part of a team and you can't always say what you want to say. But I just think that you know the worst day in government is better than the worst day. In, um, in in opposition or on the back benches because you, know, you, you literally have the power to affect change with every swish of your pen. Um, and that's a, that's an awesome, but also slightly intimidating responsibility. You know, you sort of realize that when you, the sort of stuff that comes across my desk, you know, minister, can we send people to this country in the world to do this activity? Here is the risk assessment, but it's your decision. And ultimately thereafter, if, it goes wrong or we're working with people that prove to be um, morally reprehensible or even worse, if, if we were to take casualties, then ultimately that's a decision that you've taken to deploy and that, that, that has huge gravity. Um, similarly though, you know, it, it is a, for those of us who are in the defense team right now, we've got this amazing opportunity with the, with the funding settlement that we've won to, to do something quite long-term and meaningful. You know, you can, to be able to do an IR, and not have to then sort of argue year after year for the funding to deliver the IR, but to get the IR and get a funding settlement that runs through it is different. It's new. And that means that things like forward presence, you know, getting the Navy off into all corners of the world to fly the flag and stick up for the UK interest 
um, getting the army up and running with the sort of forward presence lingering battle groups that we envisage, um, doing more with the UN and sort of being a force for good in the world, making the Air Force a bit more expeditionary uh, and sort of figure out how we work with tier two air forces, not just sort of tier one peer air forces. Um, you know, these are all things that we can sort of be getting on with, with confidence that we've got the funding secure for a number of years. And again, I mean, I just, I just think this is an awesome time to be a defense minister. Um, and if you're, if you've come into politics with a passion for making things better for our armed forces and for making our nation safer, like, wow, what a great time to be in the defense team. Oh, yeah, it sounds fascinating. Going through all that work, um, our listeners are probably going to learn so much about what it's like to be a minister and just have a, a small insight just in that in that short explanation. But actually, I think we've recently got to know you a bit, James, if I'm honest. And we've also got to know Ben, um, in particular, on those very emotional, very personal reflections during the Afghan Kabul and, and op pitting. And we saw the human side of politics. Nobody could not be moved by Ben Wallace and that LBC interview at the height of that crisis. And indeed, you were quite outspoken. You mentioned sometimes you have to rein yourself in. But to be honest with you, it's quite refreshing to see you just be human. And you are a veteran. You are a veteran like me of Afghanistan. And as us as a community, and many of our listeners do come from that community, seek to reflect and you know, arguably the fish tank has been sh shaken and the silt is up there in the water and, and, and needs to settle again. But how have you reflected on of that experience? Because you had a, a really difficult um, military period in your own service in Afghanistan. You mentioned Sangin and um, many of our listeners will identify that. But how have you been able to reconcile and understand what it meant for us all as a community? Well, I mean, I think you, you instinctively understand what it means uh, as a community because I'm one of you. you know, I'm, a, I'm a veteran um, and I'm a veteran that happened to have had the misfortune, good fortune, I suppose, in terms of serving alongside a remarkable battalion full of remarkable people at a remarkable time. But, you know, Herrick 10 in the, in the Upper Helmand Valley was, was about as shit as it gets, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I kind of feel like I have a bit of, a bit of authority with which to sort of speak as a veteran. Um, but I, look, I, I just, so it, of course, bits of Kabul would, the, the, the airlift and the, and the drawdown of Afghanistan were, were deeply personal. Um, and I know that the public like to see a bit of emotion, a bit of conviction, and they certainly like to see ministers who are speaking from personal experience and, and have a bit of authority in, in what they're saying. Um, I think we have to be careful, though, because uh, uh, there, are, there are some veterans who are politicians who, who play up the veterans bit without recognising that they're now in a position to to do something about it, to, 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 you know, they are now politicians. And I think, I think I was acutely aware during all of it. And I thought I, and I tried to sort of answer questions whenever I was on TV and radio that, that, that tried to convey that I got this, that yeah. I wasn't there to offer commentary as a veteran. I wasn't there to, to, to simply be critical of what we were or weren't doing or, or to, you know, I, I was there to deliver answers to the problems that, 
that existed. And um, and so you know, so so yes, I was you. Know, I, I couldn't help but expose some of the, the internal angst I was feeling as a veteran and you know, having given so much of my 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 twenties to 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 Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, clearly I feel as keenly as any other veteran of that period a sort of sense of was it worth it? You know, mates lost their legs, didn't come back, you know, um and 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 now the world seems to want to move on and yet my mates are still living with those scars and yeah. And, and, and and how do we deal with that? But but it wasn't my job to you know I, if you're a politician and you're going on TV and all your being is the sort of emotional veteran, well there are hundreds of thousands of people who can be veterans and be emotional. If you're a politician, your job is to go on TV and radio and front up to the problems and start to try and talk about what you're going to do about it. And if you can't do as much about it as you'd want to, you need to be honest about that fact. Um, that's what I try to be. Well, it certainly came across that honesty and it has now, if I'm perfectly honest, honest, using that word honest again, there we go. But I guess in politics, you found a bit of a purpose again, um, because we know in, in the, uh, for our, our military careers, you get a real strong sense of purpose. It's in our DNA and whatever we do, even the most mundane to the most punchy of tours like you've just described that sense of purpose is always there omnipresent and i think for yeah. some veterans when they do transition they you know they find a job not the job and they should get the job but there's all those other bits around it as well around purpose what they might do in their communities which is why i'm such a huge flag waver for standing up and serving again and i think that politics is just one example in which way veterans can be visible in their communities as veterans and find a sense of purpose as well um i mean how, how have you maintained your sense of purpose uh, since leaving the armed forces and what advice might you give to other veterans finding a purpose once they transition and settle in their communities well, johnny i think that that is um i think that, that is a key distinction uh you know, which makes it easier actually i think that in politics you still get a real sense that you're serving your nation serving your community um you know we all when you're in the Army, Navy, Air Force, when you get a set of orders, there's a sort of, there's an in order to, and beyond the in order to is a higher purpose, sort of sense that what you're doing is to help other people succeed. And the in order to's add up to something really strategic and meaningful and, you know, and valuable. And so it's really easy to derive value because you can see that what you're doing is part of a plan that, is transformative. And for many veterans, I think the sort of transfer into civilian employment, when the in order to is make a bit more profit, the in order to is to be a bit more productive, um, the in order to is to complete the project before end of month results. I mean, you just, you know, that, that can feel quite hollow. It can feel quite meaningless. No, it's not. There are millions and millions of people and our economy relies on people getting out of bed every morning and working in order to make a bit more profit, to be a bit more productive. So I don't mean to I don't mean to diminish that, but I think as a veteran, when you're used to this sort of constant sense of purpose and that you're a part of a machine, part of a plan, you're doing something of value, it can be really discombobulating to be out of that and all of a sudden to sort of think, well, what am I thought? I've lost my purpose here. I've lost my sense of self. 
Now, I don't think that, that, that you know, I don't think every veteran should therefore uh, seek a role in elected office, although you know, there's room for many, many more. Um, but I do think that it doesn't surprise me that lots of veterans seek to get involved in community activism in an apolitical way, you know, just being part of a community, being part of a community group, trying to put something back so that they get that, that sort of drug of doing good. Because I think that that is, that is, that is the, you know, lots of us, uh, you know, if you've been um, posted as I was to Cavalry Barracks in Hounslow pre-renovation, you're certainly not in the military for, uh, for the luxurious accommodation. Uh, and if you've been uh, sat, um, this is a bit of an officer's thing, but if you've been sat in Sophie's Steakhouse on the, King, on the Fulham Road on a Friday evening with all of your mates in the city, you realise that they're able to pay their share of the bill with somewhat more comfort than you can pay yours. Um, so you're not in for the money either. But what you're in it for is a sort of, is a sense of, you know, I'm doing something for my nation. I'm doing something that is worthy. I'm doing something that my family and my friends and my community are proud of. Um, and I would encourage all veterans, you know, when they when they leave, even if they've got a 300 grand a year contract with Deutsche Bank to 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 leave into, um, they will still find, I think, that there is something missing in their life, and that thing that's missing is a sense of service. And to become a local councillor, to be part of a local community group, to be involved in community activism, will will give them that 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 one little bit that all of that money can't buy and will help them to maintain that sense of purpose and service that they've enjoyed so much in their military careers. And I'm going to go really retro here. When I was talking to Tom Tugendhat from my own cap badge, uh, we were talking about the big society. So perhaps the big society as a political um, beast came a little bit too soon uh, because we're certainly seeing that now in spades during the COVID-19 period that we've lived in and the veterans community, how they walked towards danger and volunteered for organisations like Op React, you know, which at the time was uh, led by a veteran, uh, Rich Sharp. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're doing so much good in the community, voluntary as part of that big society. Um, James, I think um, any closing moments before we sort of close out? No, look, I just, you know, um, hats off to the work you're doing, Johnny, with Campaign Force. And last night we had the Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces drinks. Um, I think that uh, you know, there are lots and lots and lots of uh, people in the armed forces who, who think they would like to serve on in politics. But because we can't actively participate in politics during our service, um, very often we we don't really know where to start. We don't really know how to get in there. And then when we find out about the routes into it, they can feel quite sort of financially prohibitive. And very often, you know, when you're used to that process of sort of looking at the jobs lists, filling in your PPP, the sort of the, the, the mostly transparent process of having your OJARs or SJARs graded and sort of seeing where you come on a board. And, you know, you can, you can sort of understand, you know, you're, it's a very... It's a very sort of meritocratic, uh, systematic approach to career management and the make your own luck. If you don't do it, nobody else will uh, sort of much more sort of chaotic, lack of safety net way of getting into politics can be can be terrifying. So look, everything that you can do to to bust the myths, support people um, and to reinforce that there are many, many ways to serve other than in elected office and that, you know, veterans in a community 
um, involved in community activism, working with deprived children, trying to support vulnerable, the vulnerable, exactly as you refer to, you know, in times like COVID, to bring to bear our organizational skills and frankly, just our sort of our risk appetite um, in order to in order to make a difference when others in the community are overawed by the challenge. Um, you know, that's what that's what veterans bring to society. The country thinks I the country you know, by default thinks about the armed forces and its veterans community with with enormous pride, but I don't always think they understand us. And the more that we can sort of be out in the communities showing what we do, um, celebrating our service. Because I mean, maybe if you'll indulge, that is another point that I would like to make. I've always been worried myself. You know, I, 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 I fought in the most demanding of, of, the, of the Herrick tours. And I'm pretty sure that Telic 10, when we came out of Basra Palace, was right up there amongst the most demanding of the Iraq tours. Um, I've never considered myself a victim. You know, I, I saw some abhorrent things. I've got friends who have suffered life-changing injuries as a consequence, and I've got friends who didn't come back. But none of that makes me a victim, and I wouldn't swap my service in the armed forces for anything. I'm hugely proud of what I did, and I, I, want, I want the nation to celebrate us, to understand us, to want to use us, not to feel sorry for us. And that, that, that I think, is... Um, Rather too often, the veterans that make it on TV are telling a story that evokes sympathy. What we want is empathy and for people to celebrate the skills that we bring and to know that we're proud of our service and that um, you know, there are those of us who are injured physically and mentally as a consequence and we need support, but that we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not broken, we're not victims, we're proud and we'd do it all again. James Heapy, Minister for the Armed Forces, thank you so much. Thank you. Job Oppo are pleased to be working with the Veterans in Politics podcast series to help us in our quest to change the narrative around veteran employment. Thanks to the Veterans in Politics team for giving Job Oppo the chance to be involved in this fantastic initiative. Together, we hope to help many veterans realise their potential and secure the job, not just a job. Company X Consulting Limited are a consultancy company specialising in the provision of skills such as programme, project and portfolio management, information insurance and cyber services. We offer full transitional support to the veterans and service leavers community. We are currently recruiting. To find out more about our business, please visit our website at www.cxc-ltd.com or check out our LinkedIn at Company X Consulting Limited. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.